Welcome to Industry Insights, the EFM podcast presented by the European Film Market of the Berlinale. Industry Insights puts a spotlight on highly topical and trend-setting industry issues, creating a compass for the forthcoming film year. This year-round podcast is produced in cooperation with Gotter Institute. My name is Nadia Denton. I'm a curator and impact producer based in the UK. Alongside my colleague, industry analyst Johanna Kulyonin, I am co-host to this podcast series, which delves deep into the rapidly evolving film industry. I am delighted to host this two-part podcast titled Global North, Global South, Narrative Sovereignty. We will have a live session recording with a re-examining of the influence that the Global North has on the film production aesthetics and perspectives portrayed of the Global South. During this conversation with esteemed guests, discussion and debate will identify the mechanisms that underpin Global North-South dynamics in the film industry, looking in particular at distribution, financing and festival engagement. We will examine the extent of the imposition of a Western gaze on the Global South and how far this leads to content which is either stereotypical or which fails to challenge the actions of the Global North. My guests today, professionals across the spectrum of the film industry, will join me in interrogating these weighty topics. Firstly, we examine the influence of decision-making in the Global North on the Global South, and if there is an argument that funding from the North determines the creative output fed back to Western audiences. I am joined by Tamara Falikov and Tiny Mungwe. Tamara is a professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies at the University of Kansas and is an active member of the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. She is author of two books, Latin American Film Industries and the Cinematic Tango, Contemporary Argentine Film. She has written numerous articles on the post-colonial film dynamics of European film funding on Global South filmmakers' aesthetics and narrative content. Tiny is a filmmaker and arts manager. As a filmmaker, she currently works as a producer at STEPS, Social Transformation and Empowerment Projects, where she's producing Generation Africa, a pan-African anthology of 30 documentary films from 17 countries in Africa on the topic of migration. Welcome, ladies. Tamara, can we categorically say that Global North funders influence the choice of subject matter and aesthetics expressed by filmmakers in the Global South? And if so, to what extent do we think that this is intentional? Thank you, Nadia. It's it's a really great question. Um, when you say categorically, I'm not exactly sure if I can make such a gross generalization. But I do think in studying film funding, we really need to understand, first of all, where do the funds come from? What is the purpose of the funds? So if we're looking at film funds through film festivals, and we look at the fact that some of these film festivals have a colonial past, and if we look at the fact that some of the funding may be tied to this concept of international development, which in fact, in some cases, it does, we need to think about what kinds of films these film funds are trying to reach. Um, and so on one level, and I'll, I'm speaking from a, a scholar in the United States where there is very little state funding for cultural projects. And to me, that's, a, that's quite a loss. So I have to really temper this concept of 
state funding to support the cultural patrimony, state funding to protect cultural expression and cultural diversity. In theory, I support that. I think it's important because, you know, the 80-pound gorilla in the room is the Hollywood film industry, okay? So I need to say that first. But on another level, we have to understand that if film funding is European funding and it's directed for a particular group of countries that are seen as emerging or developing, that is also problematic because it's very much limiting the imagination of filmmakers from those regions of the world. So I do think that when you have a a group of countries that we're calling the global north that want to support countries that are called the global south, um, it's a power dynamic because we can't ignore history. And so if you're asking me if categorically there is a dynamic, I would say um, in a way, yes, unless we can come up with different models that are more equitable. Um, And so I appreciate that we're really problematizing the history of these funds and the kinds of films that are being made with these funds. And, And to be honest, the way in which filmmakers in the global South are quite savvy about what these funds are for. And so they're aware that certain projects will not be funded because they don't fit what I'm calling the burden of representation. Um, it's not my idea, that's an idea by um, Gil Branston. Um, I would say Global North filmmakers don't have this burden of representation. They have more opportunities to make whatever film they think you know, is important to them. They don't have the same kinds of constraints. I mean, all of what you've mentioned, certainly there's so much that we could unpick there. But in particular, um, I wondered, based on your research, what are some of the key findings that you've made which would surprise people in the industry in the global north who feel that they are, you know, supporting filmmakers in the global south in a benevolent way and that in doing this, they're enriching the international film palette. Clearly, there's going to be, you know, many of our industry colleagues who are based in the global north who would be shocked and horrified that we are here discussing the fact that their funding is restricting, you know, the creative ambitions of these filmmakers based in the global south. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that in essence, there are quite good intentions. Um, Again, we want to diversify content. But if you look at the way film festivals have been structured, there's always this push for discovery. And I'll put that in quotes, right? We need to find the latest new wave of filmmaking. Well, how do we do that? You know, I liken it to um, when, when sports scouts from the United States go down to the Dominican Republic, or they go to Cuba, or they go elsewhere, and they're looking for the latest, greatest athlete. Um, You know, this is a kind of, can be seen as a form of extraction, right? We want the latest um, trend that we will benefit from. And so I just want people to realize that um, it it can be quite top-down, that there are these scouts that are going abroad, they're looking for what they believe will capture the imagination of their home audiences. And um, there are terms that have been developed to, to criticize this, this gaze, this Western gaze. Um, Colombian filmmakers Luis Ospina and Carlos Mayolo coined the term porno miseria, and that means uh, misery porn. That, in fact, many times when faced with this um, 
this call for filmmaking that represents the local climate that um, is a local perspective or something to that effect, they know, okay, this means desperation and hunger. Because when we submit scripts, and I've interviewed filmmakers from Peru who have told me exactly this, that when they submitted one script that was set in a tiny seaside town and there were themes that really resonated with European audiences, they immediately got funding. But then when they submitted for the same fund with a second film that was a noirish movie set in the city in kind of a globalized aesthetic, well, no, then, then they were rejected. So I think it's quite interesting that filmmakers are often paired with European producers, and those producers will say things that are quite offensive, and maybe they don't realize it. Um, one Argentine filmmaker I interviewed said that um, she had written a script and worked with a French producer, and the script was critiqued by the producer, and they, they said to her, uh, yes, I like the content, but the car that the main character is driving is just too fancy. And the house that the, the main character lives in, inhabits, is too bourgeois. This is too bourgeois for, a, you know, for European audiences. Can you make the person poorer? <laughs> you know, and I directly, I'm quoting what she told me. And what's fascinating to me is that she couldn't believe that, first of all. So, yes, it's horrifying on both sides of the equation, right? The North and the South are, are maybe not quite communicating well. But what I also found interesting is that she resisted it, Nadia. She, she heard what the producer said. She said she would make uh, changes. But in fact, she went ahead and made the film the way she wanted. Now, some people don't have that kind of luxury, but I do think that there needs to be a way in which there's a maybe other people who are on the jury who are Global South jurists. Perhaps these are the diasporic filmmakers that um, we can talk about later. Um, or it's just a different way in which we vet these things. But um, that's kind of the, the these are the examples that I that I've heard from filmmakers themselves. So I hope that helps clarify a little bit to Global North listeners that, wow, there's some issues we need to work through here. So Tiny, what would you say is the cultural impact of this disparity between the Global North-South in terms of funding? And how is it detrimental to international film culture? Sure. So, I mean, I think that we, we can refer to um, UNESCO's convention on the protection and promotion of diversity of cultural expressions, um, and also look at Agenda 2020 um, um, uh, for sustainable development when there's like 17 goals for transforming our world, which are outlined. And culture is explicitly mentioned in those objectives um, in how it relates to education, reducing inequalities in the world, as well as sustainable growth. So if we are talking about how we can imagine a better world, we're talking about how we can look at all of the things that are problematized in the way that culture is produced and consumed on the planet and say, we need to come together and create a vision for a better sustainable ecosystem um, for cultural production in the world. Now, as uh, cultural producers, there are two levels in which we need to advocate. We need to advocate in and amongst our peers, 
And when we talk about our peers, we're talking about cultural actors working from the global south, as well as cultural actors working from the global north. We need to come to a shared vision of what an equitable and a sustainable ecosystem for cultural production looks like. Then we need to, as a community of global north and global south, cultural producer, then advocate on a higher level um, and on the level of the United Nations, the African Union, the European Union, the African, Caribbean and Pacific Unions, and all the other um, trans-global cultural organ uh, sorry, organization for organizing human life. Then we need to say the, 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 the way in which we've created a framework for cultural production is not sustainable because both us in the global south and those in the global north are actually existing within um, uh, an ecosystem and an environment that has an actual historical narrative of how we got here. So with my colleagues and other industry actors and partners, we've been working on conversations focusing on cultural production in the audiovisual sector in Africa and problematizing the North-South relation in, a, in, 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 in terms of um, the environment that it creates for cultural production for those in the global South. And I think we frame it when we talk about North-South relations, we frame it on the basis of cooperation. Um, but we're, what we're doing is that we're, we're erasing a very important part of this narrative, which is how we got to a situation where those in the global south are working from the back footing. And I think um, it requires these two levels of advocacy and uh, lobbying, both for the sustainability of cultural production in the global south, as well as in the global north. And do you think that part of the solution is for filmmakers in the global south to look for funding sources closer to home. I think I think this would be idealistic, even to say utopian, to say uh, filmmakers in Benin need to go to their government and look for funding. Filmmakers in Djibouti need to hit up their local minister and ask for for funding. And then we can start to demonize our political leader and our local infrastructure and say this is the reason and this is a problem. But really, the problem is colonialism. Really, the problem is about the distribution of resources in our planet and how when we imagine our cinemas, we imagine them as a national phenomenon. It's not practical to say that some of the worst hit countries by colonialism must now prioritize uh, cultural funding in a situation where everyday resources that are essential for sustaining life are being extracted unjustly as we speak from the global south to the global north. It's, un it's unfair to say that this is what cultural producers in, in countries that are disadvantaged by colonialism must do, that they must stand up and come up with a solution for this specific part of human life. That's my view about it. In our second topic for this podcast, we turn to the theme of diaspora film creatives and their awkward positioning between Global North and Global South funding and industry opportunities. Diaspora productions can often find themselves wedged in a space where their perspectives may not be given due regard. This is either because they are not physically based in the Global South or they can be marginalized by national funding bodies for not presenting what is regarded as quote unquote mainstream narratives. Tamara Dawit and Tessa Borman are vocal advocates on this subject. 
Tamara is a producer and director based between Canada and Ethiopia. She runs the production company Gobez Media, which produces Ethiopian film, TV, digital, and music content. After the short film, Grandma Knows Best, she directed the feature documentary Finding Sally, which had its Northern American premiere at the Hot Docs Documentary Festival in 2020. In Canada, Tamara is a founding board member of the Racial Equity Media Collective and a consultant on equity and inclusion for the Canada Media Fund. In Ethiopia, she is a founding member of Ethiopia Curates and the East African Film Working Group. Tamara has produced documentary and digital content for CBC News, MTV, Radio Canada, Discovery, NHK, and others. She is a resident in Docs in Progress and an alumnus of Berlinale Talents, Durban Talents, Rotterdam Lab, Apost, and Iave. Tessa is an independent documentary filmmaker, advisor, and film programmer. In her work, she promotes marginalized voices and underrepresented perspectives in films and the film industry and advocates diversity and inclusion within the framework of intersectionality. She has made powerful documentaries that highlight different aspects of beauty, ideals, and belonging. For the International Film Festival of Rotterdam, she worked as a programmer and made several editions about cinema through the lens of Black filmmaking and the Black experience, including Black Rebels in 2017, Pan-African Cinema Today in 2018, and Soul in the Eye in 2019. Tessa has led the industry diversity think tanks for IDVA, the International Documentary Film Festival of Amsterdam. With the Dutch Directors Guild, she advocated for cultural diversity and inclusion in the Dutch film and TV industry. In 2020, she held a pledge during IDVA to decolonize the documentary practice called Framing of Us. She is a mentor to the International Master Research Program of the Dutch Film Academy. Tessa, please tell me, what do we mean when we speak of diaspora? And why is the position of diaspora filmmakers so problematic in the global north-south dynamic? Diaspora is a, a vast, I could say, container notion to direct to the uh, vast community of people that are living within Europe or in the global realm outside of the so-called countries that they originate from. And um, I think it's very important to keep on highlighting the fact that we, what we, for instance, in Europe consider as European is not only a diversity of nations, which is very often the case when we talk about diversity in Europe, but it's also about the diversity within Europe and uh, acknowledging the historic relations between Europe and the rest of the world and the migration that has uh, been uh, a result of that. And in addition to the effects of uh, slavery, and uh, the Black African diaspora communities around the globe, because it's still something that has to be named, acknowledged, identified. But also, I think, in terms of the industry acknowledging that as a way that needs to be represented, but also thinking differently about uh, audiences is really important to uh, keep on uh, emphasizing that. Why do you feel that the position of diaspora filmmakers is so problematic when we're talking about the global north, global south paradigm? Because um, I think it's the very first obstacle that filmmakers of color, and particularly uh, in my case, I've been engaged in uh, black diaspora communities, that uh, the first obstacle 
obstacle that you bump into is the colonial relationship with filmmakers, with their national uh, discourse. But it is not only a national discourse, it's a transnational discourse because it counts not only in Europe, but around the globe, how national discourses relate to their colonial histories. So um, when you talk about a global North and South conversation, it is uh, very often um, happening through the, the lens or the, through the pathways of how national discourses related to their own colonial history is taking place, whether it's taking place. Um, it's very hard to detangle those two, um, but it's very often um, it starts with acknowledging that colonial history, the national colonial history. I find it quite um, insightful what you say, um, in particular about the colonial relationship, because I think often in the global north, there's this perception of history where, oh, that happened a long time ago. It's no longer relevant. You know, we're modern, you know, we're post-racial, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in your own sort of practical experience, what are some of the ways, the sort of day-to-day -day ways that you see these dynamics playing out? So where people who are, um, you know, are from diaspora, you know, who have links with the global south are having to sort of deal with these issues of the sort of colonial legacy in their filmmaking practice and when they're dealing with film institutions or the industry at large? It is such a huge web of links and uh, connections that I, because of the, the pledge that um, Shimira Rafaela and I held, it is still coming up of the, the, the fine web of effects that it still has, but just name a couple of them. Um, I think the whole colonial relationship is reflected in the way the industry is represented. The industry is predominantly white from a very specific socioeconomic class and uh, very often privileged positions. So in there, there's already a dominant group representing national uh, industries. First of all, that's one of them. But through that, there's a very dominant gaze on history. There's a very dominant gaze on culture. And there's a very dominant gaze on narratives. And uh, so all these dominant uh, positions are played out in literally every single step of filmmaking. Uh, it starts off with the way um, people are selected in uh, film schools. It's, uh, it is embedded in the way commissioning editors look at projects that are uh, being submitted to them. It is embedded in commissions that are uh, making decisions on funding. You so filmmakers, of color, but also filmmakers from the global south have to go through all these hurdles. They have to, to be able to take all these hurdles in order to uh, have an authentic or an own perspective. They have to fight stereotypes, but at the same time, they have to, they need to be social acrobats to negotiate all these perspectives and do that in such a way that you can manage emotions that come with that and to manage conversations that are highly defended, uh, defending certain perspectives. So besides from having skills as a filmmaker, you also need all these other skills in order to uh, negotiate these kind of uh, dominant cases. So I, I can only name a few of these, but it's uh, we'll probably come back in the conversation with an, very specific examples that uh, also are played out during the process of uh, filmmaking but it's all over the place. And I think the hardest thing is that people are not aware. 
they, like you said, a lot of people think this is a historical reality and it's not part of our daily life and it's not part of the fabric of our contemporary culture. So you first have to shed light on these things in order to address it. And I'm, I'm not only talking about people who are very willing to look at those things and are willing to accept that they have they might have a limit, limited perspective, but um, I really want to uh, emphasize also that there's a lot of people who really oppose the very notion. So this means that you have to deal with people who not only not recognize or are not aware, but really are trying to reject the notion of a colonial relation. And with all the right-wing um, policies that are emerging in Europe and I think in a large part of the, the world, um, it's even harder to fight that. So to get this acknowledged that there is racism, that there is still a very white supremacist um, colonial perspective within all aspects of society, that is a struggle by itself already. So it's so multi-layered and uh, complex. That's a really excellent rundown. Um, and I particularly note what you said about the social acrobats that, you know, um, filmmakers and uh, professionals, you know, of diaspora have to navigate. Uh, you mentioned during your response a pledge that you and your colleague put out to the industry. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what the pledge was and what the response has been really, and what you're hoping for long-term as a result of having put that out? The pledge started because a lot of um, filmmakers um, found themselves in situations where, um, and I think every filmmaker of color or a filmmaker who was operating, who was not from the global north and was operating in a a northern uh, or western, uh, so-called western um, environment, knows that you have certain conversations that you are not able to um, to have with everyone present. So we found out that we really felt an urgency to bring these conversations out because having these conversations amongst ourselves won't solve anything, besides from empowering ourselves, that what we see, what we experience is, is real and it's systemic, it's not individual. I think that was a really important thing to do, but we really wanted to... Uh, share with the industry the systemic reoccurrence of these mechanisms because a lot of times individuals are um, demonized even uh, but problemized at least for uh, bringing up certain uh, mechanisms of exclusion or bringing up certain uh, dynamics that they had to fight while making a film and they were not acknowledged so every single filmmaker is fighting this struggle by uh, by themselves so we decided to have this pledge to break it out in the open and to find out to our in a way to our still our surprise that nobody was was willing to do this of course the netherlands is a small country so we thought okay we understand but then we found out while talking to uh, people abroad that even people from bigger countries they were really scared to do so because you don't want to uh, alienate your own colleagues you don't want to um challenge your opportunities uh, as a filmmaker. So then we decided, okay, let's take it out in the open and use a big platform for everybody to be exposed at the same time internationally and see if we can build up the numbers. So that's why we did a a pledge first to inventorize all these voices and then to do a program. And still, if we need to do it anonymously, we're going to do it. 
and we'll have people, if necessary, to check that these are real people with real stories who can be identified. But we felt the need that these stories and experiences have to be brought to daylight because otherwise the industry will never understand what kind of experience people have and share behind closed doors. So we want to shed light and um, uh, offer the opportunity for transparency, but also offer an opportunity for the industry to get real about what is happening and why certain stories cannot be told at this particular time. It's like, if we don't tell this, people will never have an understanding of how this works, why these stories never get to see the, the, uh, the light of day. Um, so even if we have to do it anonymously, uh, only in sound or only in written form, we have to bring them out. It's fantastic, really. I mean, I'm very much looking forward to us being able to sort of go for a further deep dive into the work that's happened as a result of the pledge uh, as part of the second episode of this podcast. Um, Tamara, you straddle both worlds as a filmmaker based between Canada and Ethiopia. Um, often, you know, when I'm certainly talking with filmmakers in the global south, they're of the impression that, you know, diaspora creatives are near to the source, you know, being um, in the global north and certainly that they are, um, you know, uh, the global north is awash with resources, money, opportunities. Um, what is your take on this? Because clearly, you know, diaspora filmmakers are in this very sort of awkward position of, in theory, being near, near to the resources, quote unquote, um, and the funding and whatnot but then having all of the challenges that Tessa has um, so eloquently raised. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more based on your experiences um, straddling both the North and South and as well as your work in the equity space. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm someone who, who because of all these barriers we talked about earlier, um, left Canada. I mean, you know, part of the, the brain drain. And I know many other um, Africans who work in the screen sector in Canada who've left um, because there's just no ability to access funds. And there's no, you know, many things in Canada, like many parts of Europe, are triggered by um, having a broadcaster on board, having um, a distributor or a sales agent. And if those decision makers don't look like us, they don't come from our community, they don't understand um, our stories, and they're also not tracking our audiences they're not going to see value in our work. So for me, that made it very difficult to, to finance anything in Canada. Um, and that's why I went to, to work in Ethiopia, because I was able to be a bit more free to, to do the type of content that I wanted to do and to work with creatives in Ethiopia. Um, yes, I have a lot more access than um, filmmakers somewhere in the Global South because of my passport, because of my ability to travel, uh, maybe even because of, you know, the my ability to speak English really well, because that's my mother tongue. Those those things certainly help me. Um, but I think the idea that I was able to, to, to access a lot of funds is simply not the case. I think things are changing now. Um, I don't know as much about in Europe, but certainly in North America. But I don't see that the changes in in wanting to fund racialized and indigenous content in the US and Canada are really going to benefit someone like me because there is still this focus on telling localized stories. So if I wanna make a film about a, you know, a, a black contemporary issue somewhere in Canada, somewhere in the US, uh, I may be able to finance that through some of these new funds that have popped up, but it's a question of, you know, are these um, temporary funds, are they going to stay? But I think it's still incredibly difficult 
to finance and find support for narratives that take place in the global south. Um, also for films that have writer-directors from the global south, because many countries don't have co-production treaties. And if you're working within Europe or within um, Canada, you need to be able to co-produce. And we don't have treaties outside of Europe and North America and maybe a handful um, of African uh, countries, countries in South America and Southeast Asia. So that, I think, adds further challenges to how do we bring in these filmmakers? How do we collaborate on those projects? And then I think certainly, you know, wearing my hat um, as a producer in Ethiopia and looking at what financing is available for, for an African project, there's still very few pots. And it's important, I think, that those pots that are available stay um, available only to people with African passports. I'm not advocating that I should be able to, you know, qualify for something like the Infrabirtha Fund, I think, uh, or the World Cinema Fund. I think it's important that those are specifically for, for those applicants. But I also think that there's, there's a missed opportunity in, in where do the filmmakers who look like me, who move between both, how do we fit in? Um, and how do I also find more filmmakers like myself, um, specifically in Europe? I think there's a need for, for the industry to do a bit of an audit and to look at the data because we don't know where there are other racialized and indigenous producers, I think, especially in Europe. In Canada, we're starting to get a lot of information about that. Um, but when I come to something like the EFM or the Marche de Film and I look for co-producers and I, you know, I say I need someone in France because of this fund, I need a Dutch person, I can't find people that aren't white. And then when I've gone through all these brilliant, you know, training programs in Europe, I did the IDFA Academy maybe a decade ago. I did the Rotterdam Lab recently, um, the Berlin Alla Talents. When I look at the European participants, they're also all white. So where are the, the racialized participants that I can meet with, um, that I can co-produce with? Because I feel that they would have a much stronger understanding of the narratives I'm trying to work on and, and the types of projects I want to make. And I would prefer generally to, to work and collaborate with those people, but I just, they're not being promoted. Um, and I think Tessa talked about, you know, the pipeline from the beginning, who gets into film schools, who gets to get into these industry programs, um, who has access and the connections. And I think until there's more people that look like us in those spaces, it's going to be challenging to have, I think, sustainable and meaningful partnerships between the Global North and the Global South. I'm aware that you are involved with um, Follow the Nile, which is a programme um, between uh, the Global North and South around funding and collaborations. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences with that and the extent to which it's addressed some of the challenges that you've posed? Yeah, I mean, I'm in, I was involved in that programme because an Ethiopian writer-director um, that I produce was the applicant. Um, he was the eligible applicant to that program. That program is much more focused, I would say, on the writer-director and then the producer can, can come along. Um, I mean, I also went through that program during COVID. So I think there were a lot of challenges um, for many labs in terms of how they've been able to think about how to pivot to to teaching and networking um, and, and mentoring people in an online space. But I think generally I'm not supportive of, of labs like Follow the Nile that come with a really Northern perspective in how they should be taught. Um, you know, someone in, in Europe somewhere decides, hey, let's do these things for those people over there. 
but the people who are actually developing the program and leading the program are often still those people in Europe. Um, and, you know, Follow the Nile is one of many, many programs like that. And I think they have the best intentions, but I think that's really a, a backward, backwards approach to doing these things. Yes, many of these programs have partners in the global south, but I'm really interested in the amount of creative input and agency that those partners have. Are they just there so that you can check the box and say, well, we consulted someone in Kenya and someone here, so I guess it's okay. But I think, you know, the shift that needs to happen is the request for those programs should be developed by those partners in the global south. The ownership and control um, and the mandate of what is the content of those programs should sit there. And if donors in Europe and North America and wherever want to support them, then that's wonderful. But they're a donor. They're not the person leading um, how the thing works and what the content is. I mean, also, there's just, you know, questions of budgetary efficiency. Um, people in the Global South understand the local costs, they understand the needs, and I think they're able to manage budgets um, much better and get sort of more, um, as the British like to say, value for money. So I really am always advocating um, that those funds should be for projects that are controlled by the organizations in the Global South. Uh, very well said. I couldn't agree more. But on the basis of this, and this is a question I want to throw out to both you and um, Tessa to sort of wrap up this um, element of the wider conversation. Do we think that the gift of diaspora filmmakers is to perhaps be the negotiators or the mediators between the sort of problematic relationship with, uh, of the uh, global North, global South paradigm? I mean, it would strike me that, you know, um, global South filmmakers, often because of the legacy of the colonialism that Tessa has pointed out, are dealing with structural issues on ground that mean that they may not have the resources or even the confidence to challenge some of these, you know, global North-based institutions. Is this really perhaps maybe part of the mandate of, um, you know, diaspora filmmakers? I'm interested to hear both of your views. I mean, I think it, it depends on the personality of, of the filmmaker in question. I mean, I'm the person that sometimes is a bit like the, the bull in the china shop. Um, I will speak out on behalf of myself. I speak out on behalf of other people regularly. Um, sometimes that doesn't win me new friends, but I think it's something that's important to do. And I'm really more focused on not criticizing, but offering solutions. Um, and I really see myself as, as more of a bridge between the two worlds than um, hopefully maybe a negotiator right now, but in the long term, just a bridge to help better connect people. And I think also sometimes to, to translate, um, because there's a lot of differences, differences in systems, um, ways of doing business, terminology, that uh, filmmakers in the Global South are just not, you know, aware of. Like, what is an equity funder? And what does that mm -hmm. mean? And how do I understand these co-production agreements? So it's really translation and, and being the bridge. Great, Tamara. I totally agree with you. And in addition, uh, Nadia, I think it is really important. I think diaspora filmmakers or diaspora uh, people, practitioners in the film industry from um, a diaspora culture definitely uh, could function as a bridge or as a gateway for uh, both audiences and filmmakers and other professionals uh, from the global south. And I think you are a prime example of that. If I can uh, tell you that, um, when I was at working at IFFR, I realized that I could only do so much, but what I could do 
is use my position uh, as a gatekeeper, so to say, to as uh, for access to this festival to collaborate and open the door for new audiences and professionals. So I know you are um, uh, working in the field of Nigerian films for a long time. So to me, it makes sense to connect with you because I'm doing a lot of things at the same time, consolidating uh, the uh, position for filmmakers from uh, Nigeria, but also consolidating your um, local market in the UK in a European context by connecting it to a festival like IFFR. So it really serves, I think, on many levels, um, both for the diaspora markets and audiences in uh, Europe in this case, but also to give access or give a pathway to filmmakers and professionals from the global south to uh, festivals in uh, Europe. So I think um, for, again, for a lot of um, different parties in the whole chain of filmmaking, it's really important to have an understanding that these ties and connections are already there. And uh, there is an infrastructure there and there is already people who are very um, mm -hmm. expertised and have a historic relationship and have a history with uh, all these things that are kind of becoming um, uh, either in fashion right now or part of uh, national policies, that there's a structure they can already uh, work on. In our final segment of today's episode, we will review the ecosystems and models that attempt to provide decentralized, decolonized alternatives to the global North-South paradigm. Lamia Belkaid Gugia and Abhishek Nalamba will enlighten us with some practical examples of instances where diaspora film creatives, alongside their Global South counterparts, have created value and pooled resources in order to highlight their perspectives and stories. Lamia was artistic director of the Kataj Film Festival between 2015 and 2019. She is a graduate of Paris University with a doctorate in communications. Lamia is a film critic who teaches the history of cinema and film analysis at Qatar University, where she is currently the director. Her work focuses on Tunisian and African cinema. As a cultural expert, she is programmer of international events and she has been a jury member at several prominent festivals. Abhishek works with projects and products which catalyze the, as he terms it, democratization of knowledge. He is a curator and artistic producer at Savvy Contemporary Berlin and creative consultant at Backyard Civilization in India. He has been living and working in Berlin since 2016. Lamia, please tell us how platforms such as Qatar's Film Festival, based in the Global South and in this instance, North Africa, have been critical in providing an alternative to the Global North-South paradigm. Uh, hello. Yeah, you want to speak about Qatar Film Festival? I can say that uh, the oldest festival in the South region, and uh, the, uh, it was created on 1966, and the competition was only reserved for Arab and African uh, directors. So after uh, many years. We constate that uh, there is many directors who uh, don't have the nationality, the Arab or African nationality, uh, cannot participate to our competition. That's why 
two years ago when I was the artistic director with uh, Najib Ayad. And we think to create another section without competition. And when we put uh, some uh, films, the, art, the director are live in the north, global north, and they are from uh, Tunisia, from uh, Algeria, from Africa, or from the other Arab world. And they don't have the nationality, Arab nationality or African nationality. That's why we create this section. And it was uh, um, for us a real opportunity to discover the potential uh, existence and outside these uh, this, um, countries. We discovered that there's many, many, many uh, young people who want to make films. There's a rare uh, reflection about um, the origin, the identity, where they come from. They are from the second or the third generation who lives outside uh, the country. And uh, we program some films outside competition, and we program two panels uh, with real reflection for uh, this world. What is diaspora? What does it mean, diaspora? Is that the diaspora, the old diaspora, or the young people who is living, who are living now uh, uh, in Algeria, or who are living in, in France, and uh, makes the films in her country, country origin. Every film, we try to accompany it with real reflection uh, about the content of the film. The, the idea was to, to, to make films documentary or fiction. It's not a problem for us. The, the idea is how to, um, to, to make a connection with directors, with critics, with the programmer, how to connect them connect a producer who are from uh, these countries also, and they live outside uh, the, the South, glo the global South. And uh, it was a real, real experience, good experience for us because it was a, a real opportunity for, for these this, this young people to make this connection. Because after Carta, this first connection, all this film was programmed outside. And this is the specificity for Carthage Film Festival. So the, 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 the Carthage Film Festival is the opportunity to program the film from the south. But if you don't live in Algeria outside, it's not easy to program your film in your country. That's why the, the programming this uh, kind of films in Carthage Film Festival um, give it a, a real chance for these uh, uh, filmmakers to uh, make connection with their origin country and the other world from the Arab world or the African world. Our, our idea is not to program only films, but to make a real reflection about the nostalgia, about the, the, the individual experiences for these directors. And in the case of Dorota Meriam Kelo, with her film in Mansoura, You Separated Us, she has a real experience about her grandfather's origins. It's like a, a, a reconciliation with the origin of, of, of this the cinema, uh, makes her um, a, a new connection. 
she wants now to live and to return with her father who lives outside from many, many years. And now all the family, you know, um, our objective is to, 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 ref to, to, to put a, a deeply reflection about the identity. What's your connection with your uh, parents, with your family, with your traditional, with your uh, his history? What you are bringing from this South world, you bring it to your father or your grandfather, bring it to the North uh, world. And now the second and the third generation are returning with another idea, another imaginary, a new contact. And I think that this is um, cinema is the only thing that makes these people reconnecting with her, uh, their her identity, with her origin, with her traditional, and and uh, uh, to to reconciliate every about about the colonization also. Thank you. I mean, I think some of what I got from what you were saying, Lamia, which. Um, you, you know, express with a lot of um, passion is, you know, um, in addition to Qatar or festivals like Qatar, you know, being able to launch the careers of some of these filmmakers based in the, um, in the, in the South, or even who are, you know, um, diaspora, who are based in the global North. But it's also apparent from what you're saying that their involvement has perhaps given them some level of um, belonging and maybe self-esteem in terms of the cultural connections that maybe at times filmmakers in the diaspora feel that are missing um, and they're not able to connect with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I thank you for, you know, that um, uh, uh, contribution in terms of, you know, narrating some examples of the films and the content that um, filmmakers have been able to have showcased through Kataj. Um, Abhishek, I'm, I'm aware that you have done quite a bit of work to increase or at least to create more South-South collaborations. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about some of these initiatives that you've been involved with. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so it's not just me, it's... Um... A team of people, it's Laura Klockner, Juan Pablo Garcia Sosa. Um, these two are also members of SAVI and are active yeah, thinkers and contributors to this project. And um, along with our partners who are based in different parts of the world in this project, uh, United Screens. Um, to specifically um, give you an example, let me... Um, um, let me speak about the moment that we find ourselves in, which is the moment where all official cinema screenings or community cinema screenings are at a pause across the world. And um, during this moment, what, um, what we try to do is to expand on um, the network uh, that we are in the process of uh, of creation. Um, so to give you a little bit of a background um, of United Screens, it's a research exhibition and networking project that looks into the challenges and opportunities in South to South cinema and video art circulation. Um, so it, it kind of um, uh, is a project that finds itself in the intersection between uh, cinema or cinema cultures and technology. And 
through our research, we are trying to see how cinephile networks that are um, primarily in the global south, uh, who have, um, yeah, who are active and who are working in in their context, uh, how can they learn from each other, and how can they kind of create strategies together to overcome gatekeepers, overcome these um, asymmetrical power dynamics, and to to also not look at the West uh, constantly for answers, but to uh, look at each other of how we are using our um, yeah, like endemic knowledges and uh, strat- practices and um, create something new uh, with that. And using um, using like we have been using for centuries t- tools that are to our disposal, um, if you consider technology also as a tool, uh, tools as uh, at our disposal right now to create more stronger bonds with each other and create new ways of working with each other, engaging with each other. um, And, and, and which kind of forms through this process could form the, the ecosystem that uh, tiny was speaking of previously, you know, and uh, so this is, more or less the work that we are doing right now. I mean, I can go to the depths of this, but um, maybe I would like to be guided by your uh, questions. So on that basis then, yes, Abhishek, please do sort of give us a bit more um, detail in terms of what you had mentioned. So currently we are in this phase where we are mm, working with different partners. Um, To name them would be Vekalat Behna from Egypt, Avec from Tunisia, um, um, uh, Akipel uh, Film Festival from Indonesia, um, Estacion Terrena from uh, Colombia, um, Women in Cinema uh, Collective from India. So these are independent initiatives that are not um, attached to any, um, yeah, like any official institutional bodies and are um, sort of independent cultural cultural workers or cultural producers as, uh, working with cinema or um, around the cinema culture. And um, we have been in constant dialogue with them and have, have invited them to, um, in, to create a curatorial framework uh, to invite participants that they would like to reflect on the moment that we find ourselves in right now. And how would we come out of this uh, moment uh, and how would um, intimate cinema or um, intimate cinema viewing or community cinema viewing would be possible? Or how can we already imagine the future of this, but by talking to each other by creating um, strategies together. And to that effect, we have created uh, collectively um, this uh, program called Rushes, which uh, exactly looks at this, uh, w- which is a pro- which is a online um, conversation series 
um, where um, our partners create the framework uh, of, of, of the conversation um, that they are interested in for their context. But of course, borrowing from our, our collective conversation. And hopefully by um, the end of this year, we would have at least eight to 10 rushes, which, um, which would give us a broad picture of how um, a, a, a ecosystem of cinemas, uh, like a transnational cinema culture could look like. Yeah. This is what we are working towards. Thank you, Abhishek. Lamia, I know that over the course of your time, not just with Kataj Film Festival, but you know, um, you know, with the work that you have done in the industry, you've engaged in a number of collaborations, both, you know, with the Global South and the Global North. I wondered if you could tell us, based on your experience, what you feel have been some of the key differences between the flow of collaboration when you're dealing with partners in the global north versus the global south? I think actually there is a real um, collaboration about the north and the, the, the south uh, because I think uh, there's the young filmmakers who have a real potential and the producer and the distributor are actually conscient, there is a concern that in our countries, in Africa or our world, they they um, try to um, to uh, to to aspire this potential in our world. This um, and I, I I think that uh, the role of festivals like Berlin, like Cannes, there is a real uh, opportunity to 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 push the young filmmakers to uh, to work. This is the, the big world, huh? but. Like Abhishek says, there is also other little opportunity, initiative, personal initiative in our little world, who push the uh, new, the young uh, generation to work with the other world, the, the North. And I think that festival had to invite systematically the, org the programmer, the critics, the um, uh, all this uh, uh, um, potential, like like lobby, to uh, uh, collaborate together and to to open um, the eyes for other things, because I I think I deeply think that we have a real potential not yet used in our countries, and uh, our role, Abhishek, uh, uh, Temba. You, Nadia, and the the, the, the programmer, and all all this uh, uh, um, community must collaborate together without money. I know there is no money, but we try to uh, push this opportunity, little opportunity, or, or, or and to collaborate together when there is an opportunity. I call Abhishek. I call it. It's possible now. To, uh, uh, to be in the other world because we have a real potential in our world. I think to, we have a real potential in Senegal, in uh, Nigeria, in Algeria today, there is a real potential in Algeria. In, in Tunisia, now, now uh, we have a film which is um, related to, to the Oscars. You, are, you know, look, when you speak about this initiative, 
all the distributor or, or the commercial uh, potential can be, uh, we must attractive this potential to, to, to work together. I think, uh, I think that this is the role of uh, the festivals and the, the programmer and the, 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 the critics to speak about this uh, uh, little program, but we must do it, we must collaborate, we must speak about this initiative, we must consacre time uh, for these initiatives. I think our role, our responsibility that, uh, I say that because I, I think this is the role also for Carthage Film Festival, it's a, a deeply um, responsibility because I think uh, Carthage Film Festival are now, now Luna or other festivals or, or uh, Luxor Fil Film Festival must program films who, uh, um, for directors who are living outside Africa. Now, we must collaborate. This is the only, I think, uh, this is the only uh, uh, issue for us to, 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 to create a real synergy about, uh, between the North and the South, uh, the Global South. That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Lamia. Abishak, I see that you want to come in. Just one um, small comment. Um, I'd like to say that as we are thinking about this ecosystem and these networks, we have to also think about um, how we understand value and how does the value circulate in this ecosystem. You know, um, uh, like the idea that how we understand the value of film or cultural work and how do and when i say value it's not it doesn't mean money it goes beyond money um in this current form um and i, I think it's important to also challenge um the the imposed idea of 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 um how value is understood um and while we are creating these networks which are decentralized or uh, detached or independent from the state or markets or so on and so forth we have to also start thinking about um new systems of value and then how does this value circulate in this ecosystem mm. and these are some questions that are yeah these these are some questions that we are dealing with in the project right now um and i just wanted to share it with uh, you and audience at large. So this brings us to the end of part one of this episode, Global North, Global South, Narrative Sovereignty. What a stimulating conversation it has been. From looking at how the Global North-South paradigm influences filmmaking aesthetics, to understanding how the participation of diaspora filmmakers are affected, and a review of how South-South collaborators are doing it for themselves, our speakers have imparted valuable knowledge. I would like to extend my gratitude to them all. In the next podcast episode, we will have the second part of this topic with a live recorded group session involving all of the speakers from this episode. Join us as we deep dive even further into these subjects. This will be broadcast on Friday, the 7th of May. In the meantime, find us wherever you get your podcasts and on the website of the European Film Market, www.efm.com dash berlinale.de Thanks for listening and I hope that you will tune in to the next episode of Industry Insights the EFM podcast in cooperation with Gotter Institute Goodbye <laughs>